Hello, film listeners. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and figure out why we love the medium so much. Today on the show is my good friend, Kevin Shaheen. We're going to be talking about the Coen Brothers' very first film, Blood Simple. Before we get to that, uh, of course, if you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly I Love Movies, on Instagram and Facebook. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. This is going to be our the last standalone episode uh, that we release for the year, closing the year out with a good one. And uh, next week, I will have the last diary entry covering all the movies that I watched in the second half of December uh, and then going on break from there. But before all of that, we got to talk about the Coens. I'm so excited to be joined by my friend and creative partner, Kevin Shaheen. How are you today, bud? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for joining us. We're talking about Blood Simple today. uh, And when I approached you, to do this this was the first film that you threw out i knew i knew you were a big fan but why did you land on this one why was this the one that you had to talk about i've just been i guess studying this movie for Mm -hmm. the last couple years Mm -hmm. um it's just everything behind it the fact that this was their first one the the story behind how they got the money to raise it Mm -hmm. it feels i don't know it feels very low budget but feels very complete at the same time so i've always just been a fan of this movie yeah it's an interesting document as a first feature i mean the coen brothers i think for for both of us are some of our favorite filmmakers and for me that they're a blind spot a big blind spot for for me was that there was a lot of their earlier stuff you know i hadn't seen this and like i watched raising arizona and barton fink for the first time very recently and it's fascinating to you know see the blueprint and what they were very interested in and what they knew what they wanted very early on. You know, we, we've talked about the Coens on here before. A lot of their newer stuff, we've done Big Lebowski, we've done Inside Lewin Davis and New Country. You know, all of those are among, you know, their Mount Rushmore films. But when you go back and you see, it is kind of a story of like, you think to yourself, how did they get there? And it's like, oh, they were always there. They've always been dealing in very specific genres. They've always had this kind of um, enigmatic persona around them as artists and the way that they discuss their stories and their influences and the meaning behind their films, which, you know, there's a field day. um, You know, there's a whole other podcast in and of themselves about just the meaning behind Coen Brothers movies. And what is it about about them that stands out to you? Like, are they're like your favorites, right? Yeah. So it was it was something that I actually came around retroactively after I'd seen this movie. I had seen pretty much most of all of their catalog, mm-hmm. but I, I was in a time where I was just trying to watch everything that I thought was great. You know, it wasn't nothing was really sticking out to me. I'd seen Fargo. I'd seen The Big Lebowski. Those were great favorites, but it wasn't in my mind. I was like, oh, they're the Coen Brothers. And yeah. They're they're great movies because they're the Coen brothers mm-hmm. and no country. Um, it, it, it just wasn't really making the impression on me that like, these are the guys that I want to be watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until after I had taken a film noir class and I had learned and I'd seen all of the movies that they were kind of riffing off that mm-hmm. this, it, it just stuck in my head that I, don't, I, it was just the color of it all. Yeah. The way it moved, just the, the tactile, nature of the movie mm-hmm. made me want to re- retroactively rewatch all of their films and like really track the progression. Mm-hmm. 
for sure. And, you know, you can see, you know, it's it's not just that they're they have their signature dialogue. They're so interested in, um, you know, specific places and the syntax that comes with um, a very, you know, uh, you know, specific nomenclature like that. But it's that, you know, visually they're such, you know, smart storytellers, Mm -hmm. you know, they're very good at getting things quickly. They're very good at, you know, giving you information in a very succinct amount of time, you know, and, and no country, I almost think, and I've talked about that movie in length on this show, you know, before that almost to me now, having gone through some of their earlier work, like feels almost like an outlier in a strange sense. But and and not in in a in a negative way. Mm-hmm. It just like represents a different side of them, and in, in in a very interesting. I feel like that's a turning point for them. Whereas here, they're like really like in the noir. They're in the genre bending phase. Like I think you know this raising Arizona and um, and Big Lebowski. It's all about noir. It's all about the sleazy underworld of places that have a reputation Mm. you know you have certain like as an outsider you have certain thoughts about texas which mm walsh you know kind of sets up for us at the beginning of the film same with you know big lebowski of being an la story you know we talked about in that show on this show too how that has this deeper you know kind of gross underworld to it but then they bring in, you know, their ideas of crime and, you know, the life that people want to leave, but also the desperation that people feel while also having moments of, you know, great humor. Yeah. You know? And there's no other filmmaker, I, I feel, that that can really blend all of those things together. And I mean, they have gone in different places in uh, in recent years. Right. I mean, we can talk about, you know, the, their more recent films, but... You, it's so interesting to see what has stayed with them yeah. throughout. And, you know, No Country also what makes that stand out to me is that, like, that's a Western, you know. And this movie, you know, has a lot of connections between mm-hmm. No Country. You know, the fact that they both open up with a lot of, you know, good scenery of the, the Texas landscape and having, you know, the the voiceover um, of, like, a signature character giving this kind of um, preamble to the to the narrative but this is all embedded in the secret hidden crime world that is constantly feeding its characters and spitting people yeah. out and chewing them up. And it's it's so fascinating the way they do that. Yeah. It's it's funny that you say that No Country is more of like a turning point for them. Mm. Because after watching Blood Simple, it feels like No Country was the movie that they've been working their entire careers uh-huh. to get to. That and, you know, A Serious Man for completely different reasons. Right. But uh-huh. Like you had said, the movie opens up the exact same. You know, you get landscape shots. It's a cat and mouse chase. No one ever sees the detective for a majority of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, no one ever is looking at M.M. Walsh other than Marty. And, you know, Tommy Lee Jones's character, No, he never meets Anton Chigurh. Right. There's uh-huh. never, it's always that cat and mouse chase in the heart of Texas. For sure. So it, it's just, it's incredible that they, that this is their first feature and it's being compared to no country for old men for basically the same story beats. I, yeah. It kind of, you know, the more you rewatch it, it's, it's incredible that they can come up with this for the first go around. Absolutely. And again, I think that what, what they do after this point is like just as important mm-hmm. because not only are, again, are they bringing in elements of, 
of crime, different locations. You know, there's, you know, Miller's Crossing about the Irish mob Mm -hmm. and Barton Fink is this, you know, um, meditation on writer's block Mm -hmm. and, you know, other, you know, uh, bigger ideas about like fascism and world leadership and things like that. And, you know, Raising Arizona is insane and it's hilarious. And so is Big Lebowski. But what's interesting about like No Country, and it's tough for me to not go back to that movie because it's such an important film for me. But, you know, I agree with you that it was kind of seems like the movie they were building up Mm -hmm. to. But it feels like such a turning point because it is this bigger meditation on life and it's it's an existential movie. Yeah. I don't necessarily consider maybe like without like other than Barton Fink, I don't consider a lot of their earlier movies very existential. I don't really see that in Raising Arizona. I don't really see that in um, Big Lebowski. I think Mm -hmm. they're leading more with zaniness and um, the stream of conscious kind of follow through with narrative storytelling that they see in, you know, in in novels, like they're very well-read filmmakers. They Mm -hmm. love the works of Raymond Chandler and any kind of, um, you know, noir, uh, you know, storytelling. But this one's also interesting, like Blood Simple, because like it's, it's pretty easy to follow. You know, I do, I find it like very easy to like go through yeah. the the story beats because the story is always moving. You're never lost. You're no. never lost. You're always like just with a few. It's like basically five characters yeah. throughout the entire thing. You're not like having to go back and be like, wait, what is like because like Big Lebowski is so good, but like what is the, what's going on in that movie? Yeah. You know what I mean? You watch that movie and you're just like wait. So then there's like. Maud Lebowski shows up and she throws like a right. wrench in the whole plan and then it's over and you're like what was really accomplished there and that's obviously the the point of mm-hmm. that movie but this is clear cut cat and mouse like you mentioned and when when you're done like it's it's done like it's a, it is an open and closed mm-hmm. story and they're very they're good storytellers in that sense and they love that storybook style but like a lot of their other movies feel uh, so all over the place is the wrong term, but like feels so confusing and layered and uh, like kind of a stream of consciousness. This is very point A, point B, point C, and then yeah. the story is done. Does that work for you yes. as as yes. for this movie? Yeah. Um, and from what I've read is that a lot of what they were just trying to do was, you know, make something compelling. Mm-hmm. You know, for a first feature, you don't get the you don't get the chance to contemplate the, the, the thoughts of life that no country for old men yeah. allows you to do. Uh-huh. Um, so I really appreciate that that at the, at the basis, they're just trying to tell you a gripping, chilling, thriller narrative that they accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're allowed to dig deeper into it. There's yeah. so much little stuff that they sprinkle into that you're uh-huh. able to think about. Like, I still I still haven't heard a good answer as to why there's so many repetitive shots of ceiling fans. Mm-hmm. And that's something I have know, a theory about the ceiling. Every fans, time which we'll I get to every sure. time I watch it, I'm just like, what? Like, I get why that they're there. I mean, I know that they're a fan of the circular motif in all yeah, of their films. Uh-huh. It most likely is very hot in Texas. You'd have a ceiling uh-huh. fan on. Yeah. So it's a practical reason as to why. But it keeps on coming up. It connects a lot of characters with uh-huh. their place. Um, but no, for earlier in the career, I mean, they were like 28 when they were making this movie and they didn't have the they were funding it themselves. They didn't have the chance to say, look, I could possibly waste this movie and not get anything in return. They're, they're quite literally just trying to see if they're profitable. Yeah. While also making something that they truly enjoy making, like they're fans of the Raymond Chandler novels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. You can clearly see them knowing what they like and not just in terms of um, what story they want to tell, but they, 
the very clear influences and having clear opinions on mm-hmm. them and putting their own spin on it. Like, you know, it's, it's interesting with, um, again, with something like, uh, the big Lebowski, let's say, you know, having read something like the big sleep, you know, that book is so confusing, but it's so fascinating to kind of like yeah. suck you in into that world and to take you along for that ride. And, and, you know, the, the movie having be, you know, a Humphrey Bogart, classic is very different than something like 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 the big lebowski which is so it's confusing but it's also so entertaining because it's yes. so funny and it's so bombastic yes. in, a, in a lot of ways because then because all of a sudden you know flea shows up and he's speaking in a german accent and you're like okay this is great this may be like the greatest movie ever made it, it's it's the it's a perfect movie where if you take the main character out of the movie the narrative more or less is the same yeah there's and it's nothing like still as entertaining yeah there's nothing that the dude provides to the narrative that mm-hmm. keeps any of the story going. Right. Going. Uh-huh. Which is the best part about, you know, that narrative yeah. because, because again, he's just being brought along for the ride. Like he's on, you know, like a, a moving walkway at an, at an airport, you know, kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is again, very smart, you know, uh, for, uh, for them and gives them a lot of pockets to give their signature dark humor which is the other great thing that i love about them is that they're so twisted yes you know and their their humor is so like i feel like at times you don't pick up on it immediately like oh. i didn't find blood simple all that funny the first time i watched it but then last night when i was watching i was like this movie's fucking funny like, the, the like, opening <laughs> ray goes to abby is like i'm not a marriage counselor mm-hmm. and then later on he's talking with marty and marty's like what are you a marriage counselor yeah the repeat of they like doing that too like the repeat of lines or like just the him you know when he's cleaning up the blood and he's like using his windbreaker it's like what the fuck are yeah. you doing it's like it's so like when you're watching it, you're like there's no reason in this but that also gets it to the the intention of them as filmmakers is that like they love putting people in positions where their instinct fully takes over yeah. and the fight or flight kicks in and you just like, you kind of have to move and you got to go and your all sense of reasoning and logic mm. kind of goes out the window at that point. Like at this, in this movie, I don't really think anybody like, I don't think John gets as Ray is an idiot. Like I, no. I don't, I don't think he's a dim witted, no. like stupid character, but he does some stupid things, you know, no, they're, uh, they're very revealing in process. Yeah. In all of their films, every, every Coen brothers film, you could tell based off of the main character, exactly what their job is. And mm-hmm. that defines who the character is Yeah, and what they're doing as a profession. Yeah. And that's something you see a lot more. And this is how it started with, you know, Ray just being a bartender. Yeah. You know, he's not, He's not the low level criminals that we're used to in like Fargo, but he's just a guy just trying to make, make a girl happy, I guess. For sure. For sure. Yeah. He's, he's a simple man. That's, that is for, that is, that is certain. And it's interesting also like not thinking about their career because, oh brother, where art thou is in between, Mm -hmm. um, Fargo and, um, and no country. And then there's like intolerable cruelty and the lady killers in there somewhere. Um, The man who wasn't there. And the man who wasn't there. That's right. Um, man who wants to give up a simple life of being a barber to break into the high fashion world of dry cleaning. Well, see, that's the thing is like they make movies about things that they are hyper interested in and they are hyper interested in the most weirdest like worlds, you know, and even in stuff like Barton Fink, you know, that is a movie all about, again, it's about writer's block. It's about the process of going through Hollywood, but it doesn't, feel like it you know no. that, that movie doesn't feel like 
a Hollywood story. Whereas something like Hail Caesar does. And that's a right? movie about making movies. Yeah, that's a movie about making movies mixed in with communism, mm-hmm. you know, and like there's an interesting pairing there with Barton Fink, but like it's interesting how they've gone back and forth between specific um, storytelling structures. Like, Oh Brother is very storyteller, mm-hmm. right? Because it's based off of, you know, the Odyssey, obviously. But like, and then they go to No Country and, you know, kind of take a break from that. And then they come back to it with, you know, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is the, you know, most chapterized of their yeah, it's an stories. Anthology, it's yeah. an anthology yeah. at the same with some connective threads throughout them. So like they have you know their bag of tricks but they don't use all of them in every single movie and that's what is really interesting about them but it also makes all of their movies open to so many different interpretations because they're using so many different storytelling beats you know there are like again hundreds of theories that you could put to there and they're again they're so full of shit of being like well it just kind of happened that way it's like no it didn't you're yeah. you're too smart to have it just be an accident yeah. you know i'm sure there's something that you didn't fully think like some angle for mm-hmm. sure but there's there's no way in my mind that like uh you know, Big Lebowski isn't about something greater or yeah. like any of those movies. Apparently, from what I've heard is that they they admitted to basically recreating the Wizard of Oz in uh-huh. all of their films. And uh-huh. if you if you look back at it, pretty much all of their all of the narrative structures kind of. Yeah. Person going on a journey, just wanting to get back home, meeting a big figure that ends up being a falsehood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, it's like most stories do yeah, follow that structure, so it's pretty easy. I don't know. That's something that always. I'm a, I'm a fan that they're a fan of genre. I yeah, mean, that they're a fan of just you know if you want to just look at it for a good story, mm-hmm. that's all that they want to provide to you. But for sure, it allows for deeper analysis if you want to. Oh, for sure. And this movie, I think, will be interesting uh, for analysis in that. On the one hand, it's incredibly simple. It may not be about, you know, too much narratively, but it, in the context of their career, could bring Mm -hmm. about something else. Um, But let's talk about some specifics. I want to do some quick specs on the movie. So we're talking about Blood Simple. It is from 1984, directed by Joel Cohen um, and uh, written by uh, Ethan and and him. And it uh, is basically like, uh, again, a neo-noir, very independent film about a uh, bartender named Ray who gets caught up in uh, this murder plot uh, between his boss, um, who discovers that Ray is um, caught up in some cheating that's going on mm-hmm. between Frances McDormand, her like breakout role, and uh, chaos kind of ensues yeah, from it's, there. It's as simple as a narrative mm-hmm. as all can get out. Yeah, know? uh-huh, for sure. And, it, like, the conflict is brought up very husband early. Husband has cheating wife. Mm-hmm. Husband hires private detective to kill cheating wife and cheater. And you go from there. I yeah. Mean, it's... Um, it's so... It's, the, it's their first film. It is also uh, the first film uh, that uh, they worked with Barry Sonnenfeld on, who was their longtime cinematographer through the 80s and the 90s. Uh, and I mentioned it is the... Uh, the debut of Francis McDormand also stars John Getz, uh, Dan uh, Hadea, Sam Art Williams, and the great Emmett Walsh, one of the greatest character actors ever, who's you know still working, still in the game. And uh, oh yeah, Knives Out. Yeah, he's he's in Knives yeah, Out. Yeah, he is he's, in Knives Out. Yeah. He's in he's in so many things. He's just uh, he's he's the king. And I mean, you know, I wanted to say like I I came to this movie late. 
and I, I want to ask about your first viewing, like what struck you about it, but like the reason I watched this so recently is because of your recommendation. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those where it was like, again, I wanted to go back into the catalog of early Coen brothers and be like, what, 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 where, where does this all start? Mm-hmm. You know? And this is an amazing one to start. And I was just like blown away by how engaging it is. You know, it's, yeah. it's like 95 minutes. It's so tight. Yeah. It's got a lot of really great imagery. The cinematography is great. And the the characters are so simple in the way that they have the essentials. You know right. what I mean? To have to be an engaging character. And they and then the actors bring out so much more in their relationships. And I was just like really captivated by that. And so I was wondering, like, when when did you first see this? Do you remember your first viewing yes. and what was the, that experience like? Yeah. So my first viewing, I was um I was going through like a binge of just watching a bunch of directors, but I, it, I, I realized that I was, I needed to close out the the filmography of the Coen brothers. And I just hadn't seen, I had seen Raising Arizona and I had seen Barton Fink and I'd, I'd seen everything other than maybe Hudsucker, right. the man who wasn't there, Intolerable Cruelty and The Lady Killers. Yeah. And I, I, I saw the trailer for it and I, it was just blown away. The, the new trailer, um, I think it was like Studio Canal. Mm-hmm. It's on YouTube. It's a really good trailer. It's cut very modern. Like you could put it into a a movie theater today and you'd think it doesn't have that overarching narration voice that most uh, trailers in the 80s had. Right. Where uh-huh. it was describing it as opposed to like showing the actual scenes of the movie. Right. Um, so I watched it after, like I had said, I had just gotten off of a film noir class and I think I, had, I was writing it for an essay but what really struck me was the visuals. Yeah. The opening monologue, I was I was really into these kind of still grainy photography at the time. And I don't know, just something about it. Everything seemed so purposeful. Yeah. Like it was there. They didn't happen again, happen upon any of the shots. Yeah. Everything was planned out. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was immediately blown away. And then, you know, halfway through the movie, there's the famous sequence where no one talks for like 17 seconds 17 minutes yeah and you're just with it the entire time Uh and i've just been re-watching it ever since Mm -hmm. i've just been a fan and i've loved learning more and more about it and how they came about actually getting the funding for the movie yeah how the fact that they edit their own movies yeah it's just everything yeah they're very hands-on they're very much like this is what we want to do they know what the final product is going to be like pretty much mm-hmm. right from the start. You know, they, they're very, they're known for writing as if they're editors and same with directing. They're very like meticulous and yeah. all like it, everything that's in the script has to be in the movie. There's no real deleted scenes. There's no improvising. It's no. all very succinct and to the point. And, you know, in, in some eyes that can be seen as, you know, perfectionist um, annoyance and bullshit, but it works here because, it, and, and I don't see them as being pretentious. You know, no. I see them as being, they're, they're very idiosyncratic. They're very weird guys, but they're like, they're all in on their ideas. For, from they're what very it, passionate. Yeah, it's from, very cool. From what it's, uh, from what I've heard on interviews with like a lot of the actors, like they're never like a dictator and being like, they, they ask them, mm-hmm. you know what you're uh, coming in for. Yeah. And they're like, you, I want you to read the line like this. And mm-hmm. that's why we asked you to be in this part. And we think you'd be great at reading the line like this. So read the line like this. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, they, they work fast. They, uh, you know, yeah. get all of their stuff. Like they usually come in like under schedule, under budget. And, 
you know, shoot low amounts of film, mm-hmm. like because they're moving so quickly. And it's like, you know, they are a well-oiled machine, you know, and it, it's so cool that they've been able to make movies like that for so long. And I mean, again, their career has gone in a very interesting place mm. recently i feel you know some of their movies i'm very like yeah and then others i'm like okay like mm. what, whatever um and again it, it and most you know recently the tragedy of Macbeth was the first film directed just by joel and you know yeah. without ethan uh in i i don't know when the last one from probably the man who wasn't there i think was the last yeah, i one. mean the, yeah the the title is that he's directed by joel cohen but right. that, that i think that was like an arbitrary thing that up until a certain point, you couldn't have co-credits, right, uh-huh. so they couldn't put Joel and Ethan at the mm. same time. And, or they, I think they had to establish a working relationship for X amount of years. Right. Uh-huh. But nowadays, you know, any like anybody could be co-credited as director. True, true. Yeah. And they would always put Ethan as the producer usually, yeah. too, so that... Yeah, they're, but they're, they're hand in hand, yes. you know? And yes. is it interesting to you, like, when you watch... When, when you're interested in a director... Do you go through their filmography? You notice the changes because, like, like I mentioned, there's some very clear brackets of their career. Yes, and so, like, when you've gone through, are there specific time frames that you um, are more attracted to than others? Like, where, like, what about that interests you? I guess I, I like the show offiness that they kind of have in the first couple. You know, they're trying to get the their footing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think their first. Seven movies, you know, they don't really have a miss. I know the Hudsucker mm-hmm. was a critical failure at the at the box office. Uh-huh. I think that's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, at the time, uh-huh. um, I don't know. I'm I, I'm a fan of their. I don't know. I'm just a big fan of their hits. And yeah, <laughs> when they're meditative, it, it works. I never feel that they're too pretentious. I'm always surprised that they're able to to have this frame of thought. Yeah considering how much creative freedom they've had for all of their career for sure and i mean it's clear when their interests have you know shift over the years yeah their recent film and i mean i haven't seen every single film by them but i've seen you know a fair amount and you know recently you know there's stuff like again inside lewin davis is one of my favorites and is you know i think just a, a beautiful movie that even though it's incredibly depressing is such an interesting movie for them about artistry mm-hmm. and the idea of failure. And again, talking about that cyclical nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there they go into hail Caesar, which is a movie that didn't really work for me when I saw it. But again, bringing that somewhat noirish idea to mm-hmm. Hollywood mainstream, because that movie also doesn't really make any sense, right. but it is very, you know, forward in its ideas and is very committed mm-hmm. to it. And then Buster Scruggs, which I know you're a big fan of, um, and doing that in, in right. anthology, again, storybook style. And then something attracted them, Joel Cohen, to do The Tragedy of Macbeth. Mm-hmm. And that movie is much more about like aging. And so it's like it, they're, he, I don't know, they're in such a weird place right now. And not to say that as mainly a negative thing, but like. I don't like they're really jumping from interest right. to interest in, in these days. But like looking back, I don't even like. I can't see a clear division in style because when you make Blood Simple as your first movie and you make Raising Arizona as your second movie, you're already showing, you know, I I can't see 
with Paul Thomas Anderson, you, there's a clear line divided between Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Or even Fincher, you know, he he's becoming more methodical as he gets older in a mm-hmm. lot of his filmmaking, as opposed to when he's earlier and he makes the game and seven, it's all the tension wrapped up to mm-hmm. 11. But it always felt like with the Coens, they were steady all the way up until intolerable cruelty mm-hmm. because they weren't sure whether or not they were going to make that movie. Right, that was uh-huh. the first one that they hadn't decided to write for themselves. They were writing it, I think for Barry Sonnenfeld at the right, time. Uh-huh. And they're like, well, might, we might as well make it. So right. that's where they're fumbling a little bit. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but everything else, it feels like they're always knowing what they wanted to do next. And they never, I, I can't really segment it other than maybe, after burn after reading when we get a serious man true grit inside lewin mm-hmm. davis those are their more reflective ones yeah oh yeah i always forget they did the true grit remake yeah which i really liked i need to go back to it though because both the, both that and the original I, I think are really good but again very interesting that they wanted to do that because it's a remake mm-hmm. you know and they they've had the same level of passion and yeah. um and drive throughout their career. It hasn't seemed like they've done like, I mean, again, you know, *Tobel Cruelty* and *Lady Killers* are movies that not a lot of people like, but I bet there was still some like fair amount of passion behind what they were doing. They wanted to do a good job, even oh. if it was clearly for someone else. But they've always bounced back. Yeah. You know, they, after that, they do *No Country*. Yeah, they're yeah. not bad movies by any extent, but like when you have. Uh, the filmography up until the man who wasn't there when you make the big Lebowski and Fargo. Yeah. They're they're lesser in comparison when you're sure you're already up there. Yeah. And to then have like no country be the one that bounces you back. Yeah. Whereas like any other director, if they have those two kind of like bigger lull moments Mm -hmm. after some of their highest highs, they would be seen as kind of on the outs, you know, and not, um, like they've lost it or like, are we going to get another great, you know, Coen brothers movie? And then the, the fact that it's no country and it's one of the greatest movies of the 21st yeah. century. It's just great that they've been able to carry that. And right. they're, they, they've always been like, we, we got this, yeah. but it's also, again, it's not arrogant. There's no arrogance in there. They're no. just like, no, this is what we're going to do. And if it works, it works. Right. Right. They're making it everything that they think that they would like for themselves. And yeah. I'll agree with you. They are in a kind of weird spot. Cause I think it was, more recently, they're kind of being like screenwriters for hire. Right. They yeah, have a lot they more. They did like Bridge of Spies. They and... did Bridge of Spies. They did Unbroken, the Angelina Jolie oh, movie. Oh, right. They did do that. Yeah, it, it is interesting them doing like this screenwriter for hire kind of thing. Yeah, that's where it's the most interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to see what. Uh... Why doesn't everyone want their movie written by the Coen brothers? Yeah, like really. <laughs> like you're not, uh, like if any, like you'll have a, an interesting script. You'll have some damn good dialogue for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, any other general thoughts before we get into some of the critical stuff? No, I think I'm good. Let's get into the critical breakdown. So much to talk about with this movie. Again, I think that the pacing of it is so fascinating because it, you know, moves so freely from scene to scene and no scene overstays its welcome, Mm -hmm. you know, and even though they do such a great job of, um, you know, simple setups of you got the two shot cut like back and forth between like the 180 degree rule or like when they're in the car, like the, Mm -hmm. you know, that those kind of shots, but they make sure that every word of dialogue is like to the point. Yes. And 
then the transit that there's something that stood out to me like so much on this most recent watch was like the transitions they move you from scene to scene in yes. such like smart ways of you know visually connecting like some oh, when someone go when um uh maurice goes to like hit the answering machine and then the finger yes. goes to uh john gets touching the back of his truck yes. with the blood and then like in that then that scene ends with the the blood stains in the back of the car going into the seat cushion yeah or when francis mcdormand like falls down to go to sleep like out of the from the bar into her apartment you know they're really constantly throwing new ideas in order to make the story move because they know it can't just be all right we're in the bar Mm -hmm. now we're in a car now we're in my apartment now we're back at the bar now we're at this house they they know that it can be very easy for like the setups to get kind of boring even though the story itself is interesting you know visually every place could kind of fall into like, okay, we're now we're back here. Now we're back here. Now they we're back here. One shot to make the first impression. Exactly. Yeah. And they, they nail it every yeah. single time. And it's like, that's hard to do. They're also, uh, what I noticed in this rewatch is that they're very tactical with what yeah. they show you. Like mm-hmm. when we're introduced to Marty right after he calls Ray and them at the hotel and he yeah. goes, who is it? It's your husband. And we cut to what looks like, snake-skinned cowboy boots yeah a glass of milk and a box of alka-seltzers yeah and that that's the setup for the guy uh-huh and it's just those little details that they always bring to all of their characters mm-hmm. like it's lauren visser who's the private detective right and uh-huh. walsh and he's putting down the lighter mm-hmm. man of the year yeah uh-huh and he's just riffing off of what he wrote is like you could be pope of rome or man of the year yeah <laughs> but he is man of the year yeah Exactly. Yeah, they they do a great job of, you know, you get a good vibe out yeah. of every character because again, you don't need so much backstory. You no. you have the basics of, all right, this guy owns the bar and he, you know, is in a marriage. It's like that, you know, seemingly quote-unquote seemingly happy, you know, suburban Texas family, but there's obviously the darker stuff underneath with the adultery and uh then the plot to literally like you know yes. murder his wife and the uh and uh the and uh, uh uh ray and it's just like it's so wild and i love that you know again you you're in the story like right from the start right you get that you know the great shots of texas you get this awesome mm at walsh you know monologue kind of being like you know people think of texas in this one way but it's actually something else and then the car comes streaming in right and then you're in this really private conversation between francis mcdormand and john Getz about like you know their relationship and you know something's not right and something's secretive and weird and then they're in the motel but what's so smart about that is the first line of spoken dialogue that's by a character we can see on screen is abby she goes he bought me like a pearl mount handgun for my birthday. Uh-huh. Yeah. I figured I'd gun. leave before I use it on him. Yeah. And then the last action that she does is the attempt to try and use it on him. Yeah. Uh-huh. They're pulling the rug on they're setting I, I didn't realize in this rewatch how much they set up mm-hmm. literally everything in this movie. Yeah. The the leaky faucet that he's dying underneath. That's set up like 20 minutes before. Right. I never noticed that in any other rewatch, but in this one I go, oh my God, They're, they put in the sound effect of a leaky faucet uh-huh. or the knife that they use to stab his hand as he's trying to punch through the wall to uh-huh. get to Abby. That's Ray's knife when he's boxing up his belongings. Like right. you, can, uh-huh. you can figure out yeah. where everything belongs in this movie down to the bullets 
mm-hmm. in the revolver yeah at uh-huh. any moment when the gun is fired yeah uh-huh they they make sure that you have the information and and you may not pick up on it like the first no. time like for sure and because but it's such small details yes but because of that they know that because movies are such a an engaging art form they know that like you know subconsciously you're going to understand that the payoff is satisfying even if you're because then you're like oh yeah like there that there it is there's the there's the number of bullets there's Mm -hmm. the knife there's the faucet you know it's everything is connecting and yeah they show it like i always love you know when when we first meet mm at walsh and he comes in and he puts the the lighter down and when you see him put the lighter down on the desk you're like okay that's going to be important that's something that's important and it's not necessarily important in that scene uh-huh. because we see him pick it up yeah. but later in the next scene again it's it's constant and, and and it sounds like it's a very simple thing yeah because it is but it also because it's so simple a lot of people i think don't utilize it to its full potential just like if you set something you can very easily set something up like again having the first line of dialogue be about the yeah. gun setting that like just the fact that there is a gun mm-hmm. up and then adding on to the character's motivation to make it come full circle at the end. You can do that in such easy ways and like that can easily, that can like very simply telegraph it to the audience and it makes it so much more effective. Like I, I always hate when people say like, Oh, it's so like simple. It's like, okay, well is it effective though? No, it's, it's the most simple idea that you mm-hmm. can have, but done in arguably the best way. Yeah. That, like they're showing off they're they're reinventing the wheel. Truly. In terms uh-huh. of like the, the noir genre. And it's the small little details that give you even more character just to the setting. Like he has the glass of milk. Yeah. And he has the Alka-Seltzer. And I didn't pick it up until this rewatch. But every time I'd watched it before, I go, why is he burping? <laughs> why is he? He's burping in every yeah, scene. He's he like is. having like this intestine. It's it's difficult. And you realize, oh, he's probably incredibly stressed. Yeah. His wife is cheating on him yeah. with a guy he knows and he's uh-huh. just having a hard time of it. He's probably has an upset tongue. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just trying to settle it down. Yeah. He, yeah he's he got a lot of shit and going it, on. And then it comes in later, you know, when Ray doubles back to the bar, the fish and the milk uh-huh. are still there yeah. from when he was shot. The, yeah. the, the milk has started collecting flies. Yeah. <laughs> and you can just see the time mm-hmm. that this whole thing took. Yeah. They're not forgetting anything. Right. But you can you can feel the weight of this story. Totally. But they also do such a great job of like setting up the world and making the world like affect the characters, right? Like it's Texas. It's so fucking hot. Like yeah. everyone is sweating through this movie. Like I feel so bad for some of the characters in that, like, you know, M.M. at Walsh, he's got to wear, you know, he's got to look like an overripe banana for the entire fucking movie because he's got this, like, you know, super yellow suit yeah. on and his hair's matted to his forehead because he's so fucking sweaty and he's wearing that giant he's cowboy hat. Flies he's collecting flies scene. and, like, he's just, like, everything is just, like, sticking to him and it seems, like, so uncomfortable. And again, you know, and we'll, we can talk about the ceiling fans later, but just having that as a visual like setter in the in the yeah. scene you're just like oh that must just feel so uncomfortable because you know that fans not doing anything yeah. and you know having again marty he's also you know like in these like crazy suits and he's super sweaty because not only is he stressed but again it's really hot and you get this grimy uncomfortable like tone throughout the mm-hmm. entire movie because of you know the simple setting and mm-hmm. the 
you know, the, the clear images of just like, wow, I, and, and, you know, we're recording this in upstate New York in the winter. So it's a completely different, you know, well, you feeling, feel outside, but you movie. feel it when, yeah, when you're watching it, like I have at home, I was just like, oh my God, like I, I, I feel like I should be in shorts right now. <laughs> you, everything's sticking to the vinyl it's sitting on. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Everyone is just like, you know, leaving, leaving stains behind wherever they go it's just so disgusting but again you know that ramps up the tension of making these characters like i understand why marty is even more upset yes you know it would be very different if you know everyone was clean and wearing like you know shorts and clothes from the gap or whatever you know but these are that's the other thing is like these are sleazy people these are people who are like very grimy yes. and you know like kind of bottom of the barrel mm-hmm. folk but that is what these stories call for you know these are not stories that call for like you know the the greatest heroes you know no. even you know someone like Frances McDormand you side with her you but you you still don't fully trust her I feel you know there's something about her that you're like I, I want you to get out of this alive but you also have some. You got some no, stuff not, going on. You got some blood on your fully hands. Fully connected mm-hmm. with any of the characters. The, you, we're always knowing what everyone's thinking, and which is always more interesting than if we stuck with Abby, Francis McDormand's character the entire time. We right. know what everyone. We know what every character knows. We know mm-hmm. what they don't know. Yeah, and we're able to try and put that all together ourselves. Yeah, and it is cool to have like a movie where you're loyalty lies like it, it changes yes. throughout the film yeah. you know because because yeah at the beginning you know you kind of feel for marty because he's the one being cheated on and he is clearly very frustrated in the fact that it's the guy who he works with and at first he's just like i want you to spy on these guys and then it turns also, it turns ugly and you're like oh okay no this dude's this dude's bad and then you know Ray becomes the guy who's caught up in everything. You're like, oh, you want him to get out, but yeah. then he's doing like the really shitty stuff. You're like, oh my god, like what? It's just it's such a tug and pull. Yeah, but of- then you're like, you're debating on which is worse. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. It is makes it, it such is an it worse engaging- to have just shot him in the head. Yeah, is it worse. Like they, he, he he has a choice. You can throw him in the incinerator. Yeah. Uh huh. What is he the better guy for trying to bury him alive? You don't know. Yeah. Uh huh. And that's what's what's great about you know the noir in general and I, I wanted to ask you about noir because i mean this movie was seen largely as like you know a kind of a, a fresh startup of the neo-noir yeah. um craze that then you know proceeded uh and a lot of um or that that followed and a lot of you know independent filmmakers were working within that genre like obviously tarantino like so uh you know with reservoir dogs and pulp fiction you know loves mm-hmm. noir and you know is operating within that um and you know these 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 are stories that deal with the gray area. Yeah, you know it. You can only feel sympathetic or empathetic so much mm-hmm. for these characters. You know, it only goes so far before you're like, oh no. But that's not really the point of these movies. The point of these movies is for you to be you with these characters and yeah. just like see what they're going through. And you it's, know? it's 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 interesting. This movie was able to like re- revitalize the neo noir genre, but I'm I'm fairly confident they were trying to sell it as like a horror movie because mm-hmm. they're good friends with Sam Raimi, right? Uh-huh. And they saw what he could do with the Evil Dead, uh-huh. and you know if you're trying to sell a low budget movie in the '80s, you're making a slasher fi- uh, flick. Yeah, 
And that's that's why you get all these great images of him punching through the wall. Like it's yeah. horror. Uh-huh. But you're also able to, you're not constricted through the restraints that they had in the 50s where you couldn't make an R-rated movie. Mm-hmm. You, had a, you had studio restrictions. Yeah. So you're able to do everything that they wanted to do, but they just couldn't. Yeah. And you're able to show everything. And they show it, but they don't show. It's not overkill. It's not incredibly violent it just feels real to the story that we're watching right uh-huh for sure and no. it's hard it's hard to watch because it's so difficult yeah him trying to get rid of a body yeah i think that there was like a quote from hitchcock that they were using in the in the original trailer like it it's it's a very difficult thing to get rid of a body like you don't just shoot a person and he dies like it takes a long right. long uh-huh. process yeah i mean that's the whole premise of rope that's what that that's what that movie is you know and it and you feel that you feel the struggle and you can feel you know gets when when you're talking about that 17 minute you know stretch where there's no dialogue when he stumbles upon marty after he's been shot by mm walsh you know it is this feeling he goes through confusion and then Mm -hmm. again his fight or flight response kicks in so he's like okay i gotta i gotta clean up for whatever reason you know and like also like every Every image in that sequence, you just stop right there, and it's incredibly meticulously planned. Uh-huh. When he's burying him in the field, yeah, you just stop. It's just well. The, speaking speaking of the horror aspect, you know that whole sequence where he he gets Marty, he gets him in the car, he thinks yeah. he's dead, and then he comes back, and he is kind of acting like zombie like, mm-hmm. you know, and he's crawling out in front of the car where the famous you know image comes in, and then when he's burying him. And the gun goes, you know, he shoots the gun and there's no bullets in it. It's like scary because then he's like pounding the dirt and he's like still yelling and he's like trying yeah, to like just won't get give up. Yeah, he won't give up because you understand this. Like he just wants so badly to be out of this situation. But the next shot that he had, if he could flick it one more time, that was the bullet. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. It's yeah. just the worst luck for the guy. But we also know that like, if you keep watching the movie and you're just trying to figure out where the bullet is mm-hmm. in the chamber at every go. Yeah. Oh man. It's such a, it's such a fun, like, like active to, tension. Like just to be able to write that into your first screenplay and yeah. know, I'm going to make sure I know where every bullet is in this chamber. Yeah. And it's important. It's critical to the story. Yeah. Which is also like, I mean, it can be easy. There's the first time I watched it, I was trying to think of like, Oh, we've it was they showed that there were three bullets in there yes. earlier so i was like oh okay so they use all three of them then i was like well okay so he he shoots marty that's one and then when uh ray comes in to the he, he kicks he it he kicks it and that's two but well, then i was like is there a th-? no he fires it oh, he fires it yeah and, and then, then he fires it i think three more times mm-hmm. well there's only three bullets there's in there three bullets and when there's only there's only one left when he's burying marty and that's what's interesting about it is that like no the the gun isn't empty like you're saying it is like okay where's the where's the gun gonna where's the bullet yeah does he when he kicks it is that actually him firing off around yeah because it it, like it goes off yeah so there's one bullet left and so when i was watching i was like oh yeah if he like keeps keeps going because he because he i think he like checks it or something and that is again another very smart added attention but and then the next shot after you know that sequence but again before the dialogue comes in is john gets just standing next to his car and it's like broad daylight 
and he's just like been standing there smoking a cigarette and you're like god this guy is just like and you you out of it he's he, broken he, down he buried it in like a family farm yeah like this <laughs> like he, he he isn't even really getting away with it either that's the, yeah that's the other thing is like okay he drove to the middle of this field closer to the yeah. house than he probably could have been if he just st- like stayed by the road right and there's all the tracks, like, basically leading to the body from the car. But again, like, I'm not saying this as a nitpicky thing of, like, oh, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? But it, that's what it's showing is that, like, you wouldn't know going, what to do yeah, he's going when simple. you were in this, when you were in this situation. Yeah, he's going simple. Yeah. And, you know, and that is a phrase that, you know, follows throughout. And it's so cool to see a movie where... Again, you know, there is some dark humor and it isn't, you know, focused totally on like, isn't this guy like just so dim witted or whatever? Yeah. But it's so like. I'd like to see his face when he saw the dead end. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> hilarious. That's so funny. But it again, you're just like so interested in the fact that like this is what this guy's he's only operating on first thoughts. Yes. You know, he's only operating on immediate instinct and following through because he has no time and he doesn't really have any other option. And that's yeah. just. Great storytelling. And then when he's he's cleaning it up, too, you know, we hear Maurice mm-hmm. on the other side, and he's just playing that music. Yeah. <laughs> and you can hear the music, and yeah. John, Ray can hear the music. Yeah. But can Maurice hear Ray? That's the whole question. It brings a whole nother level of tension mm-hmm. that just otherwise, like, he's just cleaning up the body. Yeah. And uh-huh. there's no amount of time we have to spend with him. He can take as much time as he wants. He can clean it up. Yeah. But now there's another guy on the other side of the the bar that he knows. Mm-hmm. He's he's always just this close to getting found out. Yeah, but that's also what's so great about John Getz in this movie is that like he he has such an everyman look about yes. him. He looks like someone who's from the middle I've of the also, country and has just kind of settled down to being a bartender and is like going from person to person like in his relationships, and that's just his life. And you know he's a very handsome guy, but. He's clearly someone who's never seen something like this before. Well, he was in the army. Well, like, okay, but it's different when yes. you've stumbled upon a murder yes. than it is being in, you know, the, and not saying that war isn't murder, but like it's it, it's a different situation yes. and he doesn't really know how to handle it. Now, if it was, I feel like it would be less realistic if he was like, oh, I'm in the army. And then he's like, all right, I know what to do. Mm-hmm. And then like just does it perfectly. That wouldn't make any sense to me. I think that that's an added layer of his character where he's just like, uh, let's go, you know, (laughs) figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's great. I I love it. And he, which adds to the no country for old men comparison. True. Yeah, that is true. They've just been writing the same. Yeah. The same story. But Josh Brolin's very smart in that movie. He's really smart. And I mean, he is though. Yeah. Ray is also resourceful enough. Yeah. Like, I would have loved to know what he would have done right? if he hadn't found out Marty was still alive. Like, what was his next go? Right. Obviously, uh-huh. he, was, he wasn't he was going to try and bury it in that field. Mm-hmm. It looked like he was going to try and bury it somewhere else. Right. Yeah. No. But, yeah, No Country is, like, every first uh, move that he makes yes. is, like, the right one. Right. And he knows what he's doing. But this story, I think it calls like it, it makes so much more sense for him to be like, oh, my God, like I got to I got to clean this up and I got to get out of this situation. I, I also love that they they punctuate that entire scene. He's driving along the highway. The swarm of birds kind of yeah, fly over uh-huh. his car and the oncoming car flashes his lights at him. Yeah. And then he realized he left his lights on from the night before. And it's just like 
the most old timer looking guy yeah shooting him the finger guns <laughs> and you're like what the hell is just going on here i just yeah. murdered a guy and this guy's giving me a thumbs up because uh-huh. it it you just don't it's just a weird feeling and that's what i'm talking about when they're able to put that in their first movie but also yeah. just kind of continue that feeling mm-hmm. that and uh well, again, it's, that's where like the the unease from the humor comes yeah. from because again, that's really funny. That guy's face is so fucking dopey. Where he's just like, hey, you know, like, hey, the, good job. It's so good. But it's also like, again, you know, the great juxtaposition of pairing mm-hmm. that with some, you know, very, like, oh my god, kind of uh, like visceral yeah. horror with him burying a body. That you're like, this is. This makes sense. Like yes. it, it kind of makes sense in your mind that they it also, fits. They really know where to place their references too mm-hmm. when they're calling back other films. It took me a while. I probably should have picked it up a little bit earlier. I, I had seen Double Indemnity mm-hmm. before I had watched this film. And there's the famous scene where they're trying to get away with the murder and they can't turn the car over. Right, right, right. And they came they came upon that like I think either on the day or the day before that they were trying to film. And, you know, Ray's in the middle of this field and they have the huge high, wide and stupid yeah. of Ray. And he just can't turn the car over. And if you could just imagine you just went through all that and your st- stupid fucking car just won't turn over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's just like so like hair pulling levels of yeah. stress. Like it's a stressful movie because I think that I mean, it's not like Safety Brothers stressful, but it like because it's constantly moving, you know, you're you're you want him to like mm. go because you, you know, the sense of danger is always right behind him. You're always at any moment, anybody could ever just walk in and just, yeah, what's going on here. Yeah. Well, that also gets into MM at Walsh because I think he was perfect in this movie and he is, you know, a great brooding sense of danger mm. and very different than, you know, Shiger in uh, no country because, you know, that is kind of like the walking, you know, this like angel of death kind of character, whereas M.M. Walsh is he's a blunt object. Yeah, he's, he's like, like running through anything. He's not really that. But he's like kind of a cowboy, you know, he because he's got such a personality. Oh, to well, him. no, going back to you, he's dressed up in all yellow. Yeah, he's, he's kind of yellow belly. He's he's a chicken. Yeah, because he doesn't actually shoot him. He oh, doctors he- the photos. Oh. Looking, going in, yeah. That's something oh, I you mean like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He's uh-huh. dressed in this or this yellow jumpsuit this yeah. entire movie, and he's basically paid just to try and shoot these two people. And he's like, well, no, I'm gonna screw this guy over and get the money. Yeah. So he's a chicken. Yeah. He can't even go through that, but he'll just cause this whole chain reaction. Yeah. Well, it's like I think he'll kill more people. Yeah. Or lead to more deaths. Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. Wait, and no, yeah, he'd rather kill one person and take the money than opposed to kill two people and then take the money and then also and then also kill, kill two. Marty. He could have yeah. killed all three of them. Yeah, and take. Yeah, his his thinking behind it, like his plan, isn't great. Is the is the thing because he like want, he could have he could have easily like he didn't. Ha- I don't think he had to kill yeah. Marty. Well, it, also, I think that's it. That leads to what the Coens have been doing their entire careers. They're people trying to overachieve or trying to be smarter than they are. Mm-hmm. And I think he really wanted to see, he's like, maybe I can frame Ray and Abby yeah. for Marty's death. Mm-hmm. Because if he kills all three of them, then maybe mm-hmm. they'll find him. But if I don't kill these two and I kill Marty, they'll be framed and I'll, he'll be like, I'm smart. True. I'm yeah. Smart that, that makes sense. Uh-huh. To like get away with this. I was able to plan it all. Right. Yeah. But he overachieves and he can't. That's true. Yeah. 
I guess like my question would then be like, is he gonna like kind of disappear from that area if he like? Yeah. If he frames, you know, or if he like fakes the death with the photos and then yeah. gets the money and then just leaves and disappears forever, then the following conflict doesn't matter or doesn't involve him, and mm-hmm. he didn't have to kill anybody. But then if he yeah, if he wants to frame somebody and then get his hands like out of it like even more so then maybe that makes more sense. Um, I don't know. All I do know is that like, he's really great in this movie and he, you know, when he does start then like when he's looking for the lighter and he comes back into the conflict and like has to hunt them down, it feels like there's good tension there. Like he's really scary and brooding and he's so good, but like, he's so fun to watch because you know he's got that you know iconic voice you mm-hmm. know like he hands marty the pictures of the cheating uh of the two of them laying in bed cheating mm-hmm. i know where you can get those framed <laughs> i know where you can get those framed yeah he's got that like he's always got like you know something in the side of his mouth he, kind of thing and he's, he's like, always able to be paid to do a job but mm-hmm. then tell you to screw screw yourself yeah uh-huh and you know he's he you couldn't you couldn't buy his loyalty. No, truly. But what's great about this performance that like kind of separates it from some of his other performances, especially in Coen Brothers movies, is that like he's so in control of the situation. Yeah. And is the one who is, you know, letting the ball like tumble down have the you, hill. Have you seen a lot of his other work? I've only I've seen Knives Out and mm-hmm. then I saw Straight Time. Well, I mean, he like pops up in like like little things like he's in Raising Arizona and he's in he's like one of the great like that guys. He's also in Fletch. I mean, he's very funny and he, you know, is so good at being like, you know, we previous episode. He's in Christmas with the Cranks. You know, we talked about that. Yeah. But like he's so good at again being because he's always kind of been like the older guy. Yeah. And he's, you know, great at being this like secondary, almost, you know, comedic character because he's so funny. Mm. But here he is saying like i have a presence you know he i mean he's an actor you know and he not only is he he's he's funny because he has good timing yeah. and he has such a, a voice and figure about him but he's the one driving things forward they're known for writing for specific characters mm-hmm. and i think they've admitted that this is the first actor that they they wrote this character for mm mm-hmm. and they weren't sure whether or not that he would accept it so you can you can tell that this is their first real coen brothers character right yeah and then he's also obviously he's also in blade runner and like he's you know he's um, such a great character actor he should have been in more things yeah i mean he's in oh my god he's in so many things he's in like i mean he's just like a, a great that guy because you always you know his face you know his voice and he but him he, and john polito john polito and peter falk uh peter we falk. need an expendables full of just those kind of actors <laughs> people who act like with their face yes yeah who get by like i mean Peter Falk was also like a great eye actor though exactly. because he's got that one lazy eye. Um but no he's he's so great and he's again you you believe he's from Texas and that he's been a private eye for you know however many years and mm-hmm. he knows what he's doing. So even if his plan doesn't make sense to you, to him he you know I think he's totally in control, but then when he leaves his fucking you know lighter behind mm. you're like oh you motherfucker it's gone like, simple yeah. yeah he like he fell into his own role you know and it's to those listening i don't know i feel like we have to explain this the term blood simple was, right uh-huh. was uh defined in the dashiell hammett novel mm-hmm. red harvest where after you kill somebody you kind of get into a state of yeah. mind where mm-hmm. you go simple 
Yeah. And that's what this whole movie is. Yeah. This is sure. why it's called Blood Simple. Uh-huh. I don't know. I felt like we had to explain No, that. definitely. Yeah. And again, again, playing on their influences yeah. and very clearly having their um their style of genre like based in something like right from the start. You right. know, they they know what they're doing. Um I want to talk about Francis McDormand, you know, one of the great actors, you know, working today, um, married to Joel Cohen, which is why she pops up in so much of their work. She's a four-time Academy Award nominee at the or Academy Award winner, yeah. excuse me, at this point. And I mean, you know, she's has such a wide array of characters. And this you see, you know, again, the greatness early on. Because the the, the character itself, I think, again, is is incredibly like surface level for yeah. the most part. But she brings this, you know, she always has this great vulnerability to her. She has a real modesty about her. Yeah, she's... Uh, she's No one's, like you said, no one's stupid in this movie. Yeah, definitely. And she's not playing stupid. She just doesn't doesn't know what anyone... She doesn't know the rest of the movie like we all know. So right. she seems out of the loop. Right. Well, what's cool is that, like, again, you know, she is, yeah, very out of the loop, like, throughout a majority of the movie. But, like... The movie is also set in motion with her, you know, cheating on her husband with Ray. And, and that shows, you know, some level of agency. Yeah. And then even though she's out of the loop, it's not that she's just caught in the middle. She then is able to protect herself at the end. Right. You know, having, you know, that confidence of where it's like totally believable that she would kind of dip in and out of this light and dark kind of state. Again, perfect for uh uh, you know the noir genre right. a, a staple of that storytelling but she's also like so believable is also like just some random person from the middle of texas and yes. she's so lovable like she's so she's such a she has such a beautiful face and she is so caring in so many of her movies and you know but you know she can play both sides of the aisle like really well because you know, and, and even more recently, like with films like Nomadland and Three Billboards, she can mm-hmm. play like the chiseled, you know, very old, like tough love, you know, yeah. tough love. Exactly. Where here and even, you know, a little bit more so in Raising Arizona, there's a tenderness to her and Raising Arizona. I mean, she's just the the crazy, the mile, uh, a, the, minute, yeah. Yeah, mile a minute uh, friend, which is all heart, you know, and, and she's so lovable, but so funny. But I mean, she's annoying and a lot, but she's so and then. I mean, her in Fargo is like, you know, the great, the, the, the greatest, because again, there's, there's no darkness to her, mm. you know, for the, for the most part. I mean, I haven't seen Fargo in a very long time, so I may like be kind of stepping on it. But like, I think that Marge Gunderson is a great Coen Brothers character because it's so. It's their most honest, like, yeah, uh huh. there's not like another side to her. Every, every one of their characters, especially in this movie, mm-hmm. you can't really root for Ray and Abby because yeah. they're, uh-huh. they're the cheaters in this movie. Like, realistically, you're like, yeah, Marty's an asshole, but like, you married him. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> get the divorce. Like, don't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and also the, the gall that Ray has to come back is like, you still owe me two weeks. <laughs> I'm sleeping with your wife and you still owe me two weeks worth of pay. Yeah. That's the yeah, like that's, every that's char- a that's a, that takes some stones to do every, that for sure. Every character like you're you're finding out whether or not yeah everyone's in the gray area. You know, for sure. Abby's not great, but Marty's not great for uh-huh. other reasons. Yeah, yeah, um, no, yeah. No one in this movie is is great, but, but I mean, in, in Fargo, it's, Fargo, she she is she just loves Norm. Yeah, Norm loves Peyton. 
Pictures of birds for stamps. Uh huh. Yeah. And you know what? They're doing all right. They they are doing all right. Yeah. I, I love her. Uh, she's she's one of my favorites. I mean, widely regarded as one of the best actors. You know, working now. It's her and, and Day Lewis with the the acting nominee acting awards for best actor and actress. That's true. Yeah. That's that's true. She's she's got three of them, and then the one for producing Nomadland for best picture. And yeah, I mean, she's it, it's so cool to see her in this too because again she's able to do a lot with the little, mm-hmm. you know, she's able to fill the screen. She's able to, again, utilize so much with her facial expressions and going from, you know, this confusion of not knowing what's going on to the end where she's scared, but the adrenaline is pumping through her to where she can pull the trigger and mm-hmm. shoot Emma Met Walsh. It's like such a great character to watch, you know, yeah. she's, and then like also, you know, the, again, when she's trying to piece everything together, when she goes back to the bar mm. and is trying to like, um, you know, sees the broken glass. And then that leads into like her nightmare yeah. of seeing uh, Marty again. And he tosses her her makeup compact. Yeah. Left her weapon behind. Left Another, her weapon Because that's all they look at her for, mm-hmm. her looks. Yeah. But I, I realized in this rewatch that she does have a lot more. I had forgotten because most of this movie I remember for the middle sequence where they're burying Marty. Right. Uh-huh. And the setup is really nice. And then the the ending is I basically remember the bathroom scene where he's trying to punch out the, yeah, the door. Uh-huh. But there's this moment where Abby is literally going around trying to figure out like what is going on. Yeah. Uh-huh. She's going to Maurice and Maurice is trying to figure it out. She can't find Ray at all. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, she's just trying to get to the bottom of this because Ray yeah. came home one She night. becomes the detective. Yeah. The roles have switched yeah. and it's 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 brilliant. And again, you know, showing you know a character who isn't, you know, waiting for everything to come, you know, to her as like some female characters are written by like male screenwriters. You know, that's how sometimes it can be like it can they can fall into that trap. Here she's like, "No, I got to figure this out." And mm-hmm. she's going and getting answers and trying to figure it out. And I don't really think like at the end of this movie she has all of the answers, but I don't no think one, that's the and no one does. No one knows anything. At one point all three of them thought that they killed Marty. Yeah, exactly. Again, like the confusion is is constantly, you know, encapsulating the story and I don't think the ending is this great equalizer of information as i think it could be it's just where the story had to stop there's nothing more Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have been interesting if she was like oh if she just figured it all out that's just where this story ended yeah and Mm -hmm. that's it wouldn't have been interesting if we figured out any more information truly for any of the characters it just needed to stop right there it's oh my god the ending sequence is, is amazing with the the sniper and you know john gets getting shot first and then great use of turning off the lights and just trying to hide throughout this enormous loft apartment that she lives in, which is like, it was a real working restaurant below them, which is uh, mm -hmm. ridiculous to think of. Yeah. It looks like a warehouse that she's living in. It's fucking insane. And it's it's, it's nice, but it's like huge. How we were introduced. We just see a man on a cot. Yeah. (laughs) And she's being shown this apartment and the landlord goes, Oh, don't worry about him. He used to be my brother. He used to be my brother. Just the throwaway lines. Yeah. Hard luck guy smoking a cigarette. Yeah, which is again a great Coen Brothers staple of like the the random side characters that are just hanging out it, in the world that the other characters. It really are does in. wrap up quick. It does, yeah. Like, but I, I like it. It's not too long before yeah. the whole movie's coming to an end. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because then she because she's got to piece everything together. Yeah. 
But then there's also the one thing about the movie that They're was not overstaying their welcome. No, for sure. And I, you know, the whole sequence of, you know, her trying to outsmart M.M. at Walsh and, yes, stabbing him in the hand is so visceral and him punching through the wall and shooting through the wall is just like. He gets caught red handed. Yeah. Like it took me mm-hmm. until this viewing. Yeah, truly. They're able to visualize metaphors in a way like he shoots Marty. Mm-hmm. He's sitting there. There's nothing happening. And then Marty's leg falls off of his desk because he has both. He has one leg. Yeah. Up on, he's just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very. Like, again, like your first film, you're going to take the time to visually mm-hmm. show the audience that yeah. kind of metaphor. Uh-huh. I don't know. I think that's great. Yeah. It's very on the nose. But at the same time, it's, it's like it perfect. works. It works. Yeah. And at, I love yeah at the end when. uh when she shoots, you know, she shoots Emma at Walsh and she thinks it's Marty and he starts laughing and he's like, I'll give her the mess. I'll give him the message for you. And like, if such I a, see him. Yeah. I'll su- let him know. Such a great, uh, it's a great final line. And then the, the dripping of the faucet underneath. It's like, yeah, you don't need any more no. after that, you know? And I think that it's great that not all questions are answered. Like for me, the biggest question that is, you know, still kind of unanswered that like, I don't know if I want an answer, but I want to know what you think is like sometime around the, the point where she has the nightmare mm-hmm. about uh, about Marty and then coughing up blood and then she wakes up. Maurice receives a phone call yeah. from Marty mm-hmm. and then also a voice cameo from Holly, Holly Hunter, Hunter yeah. which is fantastic. Um, but saying that, you know, the bar is going to be closed, I uh, but the safe is empty money's taken that's what makes him think that um that ray took the money which is obviously you know not the case but like what is that who is actually calling is it an old voicemail or is it like uh again this kind of like ethereal occurrence like what is it i think that is marty covering his tracks lauren the detective visser told them to go fishing Mm -hmm. so he's like i'm not going to be in town I think Maurice just hasn't checked his... He just hasn't checked his voicemail in a while. I think it's really old messages. Mm. I don't know if they explain what Maurice was doing. Right, right, right. Um, But also that section of the movie, if I have like one complaint, it's like that connective tissue. Yeah. Because the burial of Marty, very memorable. The shootout in the bathroom, very memorable. But there's, there's one scene in particular where it's the crane down shot. And he's calling Abby right after he's in a phone booth. And then it's right, not, uh-huh. it's not a complete dip to black. And it's not a hard cut. It's a little bit of both. Right. Uh-huh. And then he's immediately back in the apartment, like talking to her. She right, had woken uh-huh. up. And then he goes to the bathroom. And then he comes out. And then he goes to sit in a chair. And that and then Abby just goes, Hey Ray. And then yeah. it fades out to uh, M.M. at Walsh figuring out that he's missing one of the photographs. That scene arguably could have been cut out of the movie. Right, uh-huh. It serves no purpose. And it's like weird that it just kind of fades in. Yeah. The- everything up until that point led into the previous scene or played off of the previous scene. That scene, it doesn't set anything up and it just felt out of place. 
I get what you mean, and it definitely feels like again that, that section that like you know five mm-hmm. to ten minute section that you're talking about has a lot of strange transition moments. Like not not the ones I mentioned earlier, but like there's some dip to blacks, there's some cut to blacks, there's mm-hmm. like some you know strange like just jump that doesn't really need to ha- need to happen. And it is it is weird because again you you're not given a lot of information, no. and the important information that you're given could have been given a different way. But there is something again, first feature about it to where yeah. like there is something messy that mm. happens in this movie that they probably know now, looking back and been like, oh, we probably could have done this a little differently. Yeah. Maybe not to say that they should, because movies are imperfect things and should not be tampered with. But I think that um, they're they're. I, I agree with what you're saying. That was yeah. what I'm, is what I'm what I'm trying to get. Yeah, at. they're they're director's cut for uh the newly restored version is like three minutes shorter mm. i wonder what they cut out yeah to their credit i forget that those scenes are the issue because both scenes that bookend it are yeah. so memorable yeah that any lesser film I, I would have only been complaining about these middle sections that just don't feel like they connect to anywhere but you're able to forgive it because it does they don't overstay their welcome they're moving quick they're just trying to get the story wrapped up everything yeah. before ha- had been great and they can't they can't lose that momentum right yeah the other thing i wanted to mention one other critical thing is that adding to the idea of this this idea of atmosphere that we were talking about and you know getting the world Mm -hmm. you know to be uh you know engaged within the story i think a good part of that has to do with the music yes i think the score is fantastic and because it's again incredibly simple of relying very heavily on the piano mm-hmm. there's some stuff early on with like you know some synth mm-hmm. but I, I i felt it was almost like a carpenter score like it felt like yeah. a carpenter movie because it was so like there's a lot of higher t- it's very methodical it's very it's a lot more like higher tones on the piano and the synth is like it, adding a level of like momentum and atmosphere to it but also yeah. this mystery element where the pieces are being put together characters mm-hmm. are searching and finding things and it makes you know and when it's playing like a lot of the times like it there is this recurring like motif you know when in francis mcdormand is starting to look for uh you know look for clues mm-hmm. and it gives this it's when detective fan, feel it's when the fans start showing and up the fans both, start showing yeah it doesn't uh it doesn't give the audience any kind of hint as to how they should be feeling right about the uh-huh which a lot of score does there. And it's funny, like, I mean, Cohen's like their, their movies aren't first known for their scores. I mean, obviously like no country is, you know, there's no music, yeah. but like they're great. They have great uses of songs. Also, they're great uses of yeah. like, like finding like songs put in and, you know, like the folk music in inside Louis oh, Davis yeah. or, yeah. you know, obviously the soundtrack to Oh Brother Where Art Thou won mm-hmm. album of the year at the Grammys. You know, and or even, you know, the the moments in uh, uh, Raising Arizona, like that chase scene where the yodeling is that, covering. No, that's a that's a song made for the film. But, that, but that's what I'm saying is like that is an added like that's a creation okay. by the composer. So when they do have moments of music, yeah. they're not this giant swelling orchestral emotional points i think they're mainly good at showing the you'll, atmosphere you'll, you'll have to rewatch fargo mm-hmm. and then you still haven't seen miller's crossing yet. i haven't no those two scores i can't i'll agree with you on everything else i can't really pick out any other scores mm-hmm. from like a serious man really or 
now the man who wasn't there now that's pretty much beethoven um but fargo and miller's crossing mm-hmm. those are the orchestral pieces I you're see. talking about mm-hmm. miller's crossing in particular okay is, do you think it works oh it's wonderful uh-huh I listen to it a lot. It's actually yeah. a very, it's a very inspiring piece of music in and of itself. Gotcha. I guess what I what I mainly mean is that it, the the music, whatever they use it in their film, and again, I'm not the biggest film score snob, but I've never it's never hit me as being too overly manipulative or overly no. emotional. I feel like it's always fitting for the no, atmosphere because, that they're trying. Yeah, to capture. Because, yeah, I I agree with you on that. Yeah, they are trying to set the tone as opposed to tell you how to feel. Yeah, uh-huh. and then also the needle drops that they pick. Yeah, you know, the four tops. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's the same old song. Mm-hmm. And then to go even further back, that song is sampling another song. Right. So the lyrics, it's the same old song, but with a different meaning since you've been gone. That's the lyric of the four top song. Yeah. Remixing the song that came before it. And they're using this song mm-hmm. to remix the noirs yeah. that came before them. Yeah. It's, it's all it's all understood. And it's right. very important. Yeah. Because that wasn't able to be there for the VHS release they had to use neil diamonds that's right i'm a believer yeah oh fuck neil diamond man <laughs> and then they're like no this is important and it, it is. is it's a great song it's such a great way to end the movie yeah because you end it on again the the faucet drop like the drop of the faucet and then just cut directed by joel cohen and that song like kicks in and you're just like oh fuck yeah great yes. movie let's go you know and but again it's not like something like no country where the ending is very existential and you have the ticking clock after we hear that that dream but this is very much like ending with a, a choice of like we're here mm-hmm. here's what we can do and yeah. it's so ballsy like it's so great and it like lands because you can end a, a movie with a song like that yeah and it cannot work like right. it, 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 there have been times where it's just like this is what you're gonna end your yeah. movie with really like you're gonna use this song the art like, of needle dropping i mean it is an art and a lot of people do it really poorly yeah. especially in modern movies like the the needle drops in modern movies have just like I mean, you know, Scorsese, Tarantino, like so many of these modern masters are so... Scorsese still... Like, he uses the same song. I think it's all along the Watchtower. Well, he uses that and he uses Gimme Shelter a lot. Yes. But, like, he still has, like, a command of American rock music. Yeah. Like, he, he knows what he's doing. But I'm saying, like, those guys are so particular on the mm-hmm. songs that they choose and so brilliant at it that so many, you know, um, copycats think that it's just like, oh, this song sounds cool, so I'm going to put it you know, on like this section of the movie, yeah. even though it doesn't mean anything, you know, like what you're not putting any more thought into it. Then it's like, Oh, this is cool. Which is like why the suicide squad soundtrack doesn't really make any fucking yeah. sense. And among other reasons, you know, but, um, that choice here and also, you know, using that song is it's, it's an older song and kind of having this relic of the past. And like you're saying, like kind of revitalizing and- it and putting it in to the end is so, there's so many layers and to it. And it's the choice it. to score with music, but non, like, it's not score. It's mm-hmm. not a song when he's burying Marty. Mm-hmm. It's like this weird Moroccan folk song right, playing out right. of the, the radio. Like, what radio station is he listening to? But that's the choice to do it that way. Right. And it just, yeah. that music played off of the image of him dragging a shovel across the blacktop. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's it's all like so perfectly like the timing all works with yeah. the pace of the movie and 
the you know the cuts and the shots and it's it's amazing it's just it's it's so great um do you have any other critical stuff or do you want to move to analysis no i really don't okay no it's just the connective tissue between that middle point and the end point Mm -hmm. you know it's just kind of loose for sure for sure all right let's move to analyze this i want to talk about the ceiling fans okay because i think that you know having that as the visual connection throughout you know most of the movie i mean ceiling fans have been used in movies like that kind of shot before i mean obviously like apocalypse now being a very you know famous yes. um uh example and i mean but it's I'm, not as recurring well no but I, I mean that what's interesting about it in apocalypse now is it's very hypnotic mm-hmm. and that's the the purpose of it and here it's like it has two meanings right it makes sense why it's on because it's because again it's so hot and you get that great shot of uh marty sitting in the chair leaning back with he's like yeah out of he's out of focus and the fans like in focus but i feel like i was thinking about it last night and i was like what's what's cool about this is that it's so simple and they love having like every day just everyday things like be a part of the atmosphere in films Mm -hmm. again like a clock ticking or a fan moving yeah and i think that again you know it's showing this circular nature of the world that this that this movie takes place in and that like this is a story i think that the simple you know nature of it speaks to the fact that this is probably you know similar instances are happening happening it's going to be constantly been told and told again yeah exactly it's never new and it never gets old yeah and the fact that it's like the foundation of this movie is you know is the noir genre and the stories that have very specific storytelling um structures and uh um uh what's the word tropes yes um you know there is that kind of like we've seen it before kind of quality but the fact that they're coming in with the circularness of it there is that there's a confidence i think it really speaks to their confidence as filmmakers to have the fans be in there because it's again, it seems so simple, but it almost adds to the mundanity of what you think the story is, where you're like, all right, you may have mm-hmm. seen this before, but we're going to kind of put our own spin on it and right. we're going to make it like our own. And, you know, having that been, be like, you know, this is something you've seen before, but we've got this, mm-hmm. you know, we're here we're going to do it and we're going to like, this is going to be something completely different for this movie. And I think it's so cool that they do that because again, it's such a simple thing. It's, it's a fan moving at like on low speed, you know, yes. like it can be, that could just be anything. It could, and, and maybe, you know, they probably would say like, Oh yeah, we just looked at the fans were on. It's like, well, it's a great way to connect two shots that don't exist in the same space. I'm looking up at a fan. They're yeah. looking up. They just cut between. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it has to do, you know, with this, uh, I think it's m- more symbolic of them as artists as being, you know, the confidence mm-hmm. to have that be the thing that connects like yeah. all and also calls back to the genre and also commenting on the kind of repetitive nature mm-hmm. of a lot of these stories because and that's not a crack at, um, you know, noir in general. That's like all genre. You know, they have their tropes. They have their beats. They mm-hmm. have their, you know, um, their similarities. But this is you know, is saying that it's there, but there's something else mm-hmm. we're going to add to it. I think it's great. I love it. Does that make any sense? No, like, I, 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 I agree with everything you're saying in, in terms of the fan. I, it's just, 
I want it to be a little bit more simple as yeah. to like why this fan keeps recurring. I, yeah. I agree with everything that you're saying. And that's why mm-hmm. I was trying to get at it. It's just hard to connect that directly to the fan. Right. Because it almost never comes up again after the first part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe that like that, that is the reason as to why they keep using the fan. I, I, I do agree with everything you're saying. I just haven't found like, I feel like there's just like one more level yeah. of like what this fan is meaning mm-hmm. or it's just, or it's just that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or it's just something to connect. Like it, it's because it's movement. It is, you know, the, um, the idea of this world just yeah. constantly going and but it's then, never going to stop. And, but then the only time we ever go above the fan mm-hmm. is when Marty dies. Right. Uh huh. So what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, that he was not above the world. You know, I mean, he when he has that, you know, shot of like him leaning back and looking up at the right. fan, there's a level of confidence there. Like he has this an, in, in his character. Well, he's kind of just I think he, you know, ha- feels like he is going to come out on top of this situation. Oh. And he's no better than the story he's in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what that's what I think it is, at least. And I mean. It's so easy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and easy in a way that it's like anyone could have this thought, but they attack it with such confidence also, that like no one else does. It's so great. It's almost like they don't spend too much time on it either. Yeah. Any mm-hmm. lesser director would have really milked oh, yeah. the fan motif. Mm-hmm. There'd be fans they in just, every scene. They just, they're sitting on it. Mm-hmm. And maybe they do just need it to connect two shots, but I doubt that, that that's the case. Yeah. Well, it's perfect to set up the metaphor. Like it's mainly, like you say, it's mainly used in like the first act. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having that establish what's going to happen for the rest mm-hmm. of the story as, again, the adding to the atmosphere and adding to the world building of this, you know, very contained story. You know, I, I think that it doesn't need to be shown more. It, yeah. Like it, it, it just is this thing that's constantly hanging over the movie, literally. And, you know, we we understand the the uh, the presence of the metaphor, yeah. at least, you know, it's not it's it's really I really don't think it's just like that the fan is here and that it no. looks cool. There's obviously something else there, but, but they like don't it. need to keep coming back to it. Like you I say. also like to imagine. Yeah, that's just there because it's hot. It would be something, yeah. It's just like, we just needed to shoot something to get us between two two buildings. Yeah. And Emmett Walsh emits a lot of heat, and yeah. he was, we needed to get something to keep the hot air down, and they, that's all it was. They uh, they also do an, an incredible setup um, when he first, when Marty first calls Abby. Mm-hmm. He's sitting next to a computer, and we hear... We see him sitting next to the computer and we hear that it's like a dial tone computer. Yeah. So we can hear that on the receiver Mm -hmm. when he doesn't speak to Abby. So we know it's Marty. Mm, Right. Right. And then halfway through the movie at the end, uh, this sir, M.M. Walsh is calling Abby and we know it's not, it can't be Marty one because we know he died, but Mm -hmm. two, we don't hear the dial tone again. Ah, interesting. Yeah. I didn't pick up on that. Hmm. It's just, Again, it's just a small thing. Exactly. They're very they're very focused on the details. But then like going back, like I've noticed a lot of the colors because they they light everything in neon colors. Yeah. When we first uh-huh. meet Marty, he's backlit by purple. Right. He's yeah. angry and he's sad. 
Yeah. It's red and blue. Yeah. A lot of bisexual lighting at sure. points for in, uh, in there. Um, and then M. Emmett Walsh, he walks out of that first meeting lit by green. He's greedy. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then after um, Marty sees the doctored photos mm-hmm. and he puts one in his safe and he's going to hand Visser the money and he decides to keep one for himself, he's backlit by red because mm-hmm. he's blood simple. Like it's just the simplest things. Yeah, truly. But the neon colors, like, it's such a great overlay for the whole story, yeah. too. Like, it's it looks so good because, again, you know, the framings that they're going for and some of the shot choices are very... Um, it's not flat. It's not flat. and But it's also not flashy. You no. know, they're not going for, like, the only flashy, quote-unquote flashy part of the movie, I feel, is that shot when um, Marty, like, attacks... Francis McDermott. Well, there's the one where on the bar where they go over the guy. That's like that's cool. I like that, but they're doing something cool. But then there's also like the when uh, Marty attacks Francis McDormand and brings her bring brings her outside to like the front lawn, and the camera just like zips across the uh, across the front lawn, like yeah, right to a, them. That's like that's the Sam Raimi move. Where yeah, you're the, uh-huh. the camera on the two planks of wood. Mm-hmm. These two guys are just running up at them. Yeah, exactly. Let's do this in nature. What a weird line to say. I never, I never understood. He's grabbing her by the. Mm-hmm. Let's take this outside in yeah. nature. Why? Yeah. What? Ab- what about you, the bar owner? Yeah. Needs to do this in nature. Yeah, kind of like <laughs> let's show everyone who you are, kind of idea. I get it. Like, He's like a sleaze bag. I just thought it was a weird thing to say at weird. the time. Yeah. But like the the flashiness of that shot is like I'm not saying that as a, as a negative. That's no. very much like oh they're going for the flourish. But it looks cool. Like I like yeah. it. Like you know a lot of directors have used it. And like you said, it's like the Sam Raimi fave of doing of doing that for sure. But I think like in terms of meanings for this movie, you know this one I think is a lot easier to navigate through an analysis than some of their other movies. Oh yeah. Because I think like so many of their other movies, there's like constant, um, you know. Uh, reevaluation you know like I'm, I'm very curious to go back to barton fink because i think there's so much to unpack with a that study movie and wallpaper yeah i know you love the wallpaper but like same with you know the big lebowski you know mm-hmm. there's there's so much going on in that movie and there's so much to unpack that they could be read in a different way this it's one when reverse I was, chinatown yeah exactly but like with with this one you know when i was watching it last night nothing you know, really different popped out to me about the story in terms of what it was trying to do than the first time I felt. No. And and because of that, I was like, I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh, this is probably their, like one of, if not their most straightforward movie. Yeah. Just based on my memory of the first viewing, like Raising Arizona is also straightforward, but I feel like going back to it, there's going to be like some other yeah, things that ra- pop yeah, out. Yeah, Raising Arizona has a little bit more in terms of like capitalism and like yeah. have and uh-huh. have nots. Because that movie's you're, you're, also way funnier. Yeah, you know? you're juxtaposing the two families of like Nick Cage and mm-hmm. uh I can't the other yeah, I can't I can't remember. Someone that. Arizona. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unpainted Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, um this one, I mean, I don't know too much about the Cold War uh-huh. in terms of what was going on at the time, but you know, you have the entire reading that M. Emmett Walsh gives in the beginning of the film to right. set up a, a tone, you know. Uh-huh. In Russia, they have it all mapped out that everyone pulls for everybody else. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, he, and he brings it up again. You know, in Russia, they only make about 50 cents a day. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That. And you you can. And knowing that they had completed the entire film mm-hmm. and that edit 
And then they realize, oh, we need to put something in the beginning of this. So they put that monologue. Yeah. For MM. And it wasn't on their mind when they were filming it. They just needed to set something up. They needed to set a tone. Mm -hmm. But now that tone, whatever he says in the beginning, carries over to the entire film. I just, I don't know too much about the Cold War. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, The difficulties of Russia. Yeah. at the time when this was being made in like 1984 yeah well i think like a lot of it you know in that that monologue you know sets it up too of like i think a lot of this movie is about like bringing things to light and you were talking about mm-hmm. like you know let's do this in nature show people who you really are and you know a lot of the actions that are done are done in privacy you know mm-hmm. are done you know it's great that they have like most of the central conflict happen at a bar because you know we see it filled and we see it you know with nameless patrons and you know those people are just going about living their lives and same with you know um everyone who lives in the suburb that um uh, uh Ray lives in and uh you know I think that most of the movie having again to do with noir is like because of all of those dealings happen behind closed doors and it is this seedy underbelly of a place, you know, it's a lot of it comes out into the real world, you know, Mm -hmm. and it, it conflicts with the, with the real world, you know, and it's, it's cool having like the shots of, you know, the, uh, the car in the field in the morning and, you know, how everyone could see this happening and how you have the idea that it's like, no one is going to get out of this scot-free. Like this is going to end badly. And again, kind of getting like kind of deeper at this idea of like, you know, this can happen anywhere. Right. And I'm not, I'm not saying like this exact movie is embedded in like the realism of how dark crime can happen, you know, even in like our own neighborhood. I don't think that that's what this movie is doing. I think that it is, you know, kind of just saying like this can come to light and you can be surprised that it is happening at all. And it's fun to, you know, go through, you know, each part of the movie and realize like, you know, there's a lot of it again in noir, a lot of dark, there's a lot of light and you know, how information is brought up. Mm -hmm. And like we were talking about how, um, you know, no one has a clear idea of what's going on at all. Like how, People think like he thinks that Abby killed Marty and then Abby thinks that uh, someone else killed Marty and then she thinks that she killed Marty at the end. But she doesn't. The way that information is brought up, it's constantly like bringing things to light. And I know Mm -hmm. that sounds kind of simple, but in a story like this, each time that happens, it's very relevant and it's very like kind of game changing for the story because, you know, it's it's changing everyone's view. And I. I don't know if that's a simple viewing or if that even makes a lot of sense, but that's kind of what I was thinking of. Like this movie is constantly trying to pull the veil out and events mm-hmm. and show it to the rest of the world. You know, the bringing, you know, bringing uh, the affair to an end and showing everybody what that is. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I think that that's, that's what I kind of get from got from it this time around. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I just, it feels maybe because they were growing up more at the time. I just, I, I would have to know a little bit more about the cold war Yeah, to know. I know that they're going to say it doesn't mean anything, but when you make hail Caesar almost two decades later yeah. and that's about communism sneaking yeah. into Hollywood, yeah. you know, the two things are related. 
they have a lot of undertones of you know the government in mm-hmm. their in their movies and how that is at least a slight overshadow of their story same yeah. with like you know the you know fascism and barton fink or um like the gulf war in uh the big lebowski yeah you know the and like uh post 9-11 mm-hmm. america for no country right yeah so it looms over all of their movies and i'm sure there could be a better reading of it i just i, I agree I, I don't have enough knowledge or understanding of you know I've only seen this movie twice, yeah. you know, so I feel like I feel like it would take a few more times for me to pick up on it. That's another reason why I really like this movie. It's just as straightforward as I want it to be, and it's so enjoyable. Yeah, and so interesting to watch. And you know, when I do get around to learning a little bit more about the Cold War, yeah, maybe it'll unlock something even deeper. And that's <laughs> why it always invites rewatches. For sure, for sure, for sure. But we've talked, you know, so much about the film. I think it's time to bring it home. So let's answer the final question. Why do you love Blood Simple and how does it add to your love of movies? I love it because it was so ambitious to make. Yeah. And the to think that they were able to raise the money, that's something we actually never even talked about mm-hmm. in terms of how they raised the money. Yeah. They went door to door asking for $5,000 Yeah. to see if they can make a movie. Incredible. So good. To have it not feel like a first movie to not have it feel like they're figuring out what their footing is Mm -hmm. to know that they hit the floor running. That's why I keep coming back to it. And that's why I really like movies. That's why I really love movies. That's, that's, that's awesome. I love that. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. It's hard to, for me to not look at this and have it be a shining example of a first feature of a debut. And, but also like, again, to have the confidence to understand you know, what style of storytelling like you are very attracted to, like right out of the gate. And, you know, we've talked a lot about it, how they've had, you know, different levels of interest or different points of interest throughout their career. But like, you know, this is the starting point and pieces of this movie can be found in all of their movies Mm -hmm. from here on. And they're incredibly intelligent filmmakers who are, you know, constantly finding new things to be interested in but telling them in their own way. And if you can come out of the gate with something like this and really establish yourself as, you know, a, a, a new voice in the, and it's not even just like, I'm a good filmmaker. You know, I think people like, like Damien Chazelle, who I love, you know, comes out of the gate with whiplash and establishes himself like, mm-hmm. Hey, I have something. And he does. And, you know, I'm, I'm very excited for Babylon and to see his new movie, but like, it's it's not just that these guys are like, you know, we can make a good movie, but it's also like they revitalized the genre and that's like incredible and like not very common, especially nowadays for like new directors, because a lot of it is independent, smart stories, contained mm. features that are entertaining. But this is something that is all of those things, but it's also, you know, a comment on everything that's come before it, yeah. which it's only one like, side of what they can do, too. That's the incredible mm-hmm, thing. Yeah. And that's hard to do as your first feature. You know, a lot of times people will, you know, revitalize like a genre or, you know, do, um, you know, this kind of revisionist uh, take mm-hmm. on something that they love later into their career when they have more experience and have a bit more confidence. But they make this, you know, when they're 28 and it just sets them up for everything that they're going to do. And then they 
revise their feelings on themselves with no country. And then they Yeah, that just came with age, I imagine. Yeah. Uh-huh. You you can't make that movie if you're not 50 years old. I don't know yeah. how old they were when they made it, but I feel I feel like you have to be at least 50 to No, for sure. to make a movie like No Country. No, for and sure. And not be not have everything just go over your head. <laughs> very true, very true. No, it's a, it's a it's a really great movie. I love the Coens. I'm I'm very excited to watch just more of their movies and to revisit them. Uh any final thoughts before we sign off here? I want them to make their in hiatus for the zebra striped hearse. It's mm-hmm. another noir movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're ever going to make it, but I want them to make it. Yeah. I want to see what they can do. I want that to be what they end on, not Buster Scruggs. <laughs> I want them to come full circle again uh-huh. and it on a noir. Yeah, that would be really great. That would be one hell of a way to go out for sure. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Yeah, no this problem. Was great. Thank you. All right, that does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Huge thanks again to Kevin. It was great to have him on and to talk about the Coens again. Uh, As I said up top, if you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly, I Love Movies, on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. This is the last standalone episode that I will release Uh, in 2022 it has been an amazing journey of film watching and film reviewing Um, but uh, next week I will have the final diary entry of the year as well covering all of the movies that I watched from December 15th all the way through New Year's December 31st Um, and then I'm going to be taking a few weeks off and uh, I am very excited to announce the new series that we're going to be doing also uh, it's going to be called Frankly I Love Movies in the Real World. I'm going to have uh, former guest Lexi Cutmore come on for eight episodes to talk about movies based on true stories. We have quite the lineup uh, ready for you guys. It's going to be amazing. Be sure to follow our social media accounts for all clues as to what titles we're going to be talking about uh, the week before. I'm not going to reveal any of them here it's going to be really great because guess what? There's a lot of movies to choose from in that genre. So uh, we've been working hard on that and it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, look forward to that. Until next time, I'm Josh Wall. And frankly, I love movies. Movies.